You are listening to episode 34. This is a very important episode, Getting Patients into Clinic. I talked today to Dr. Sarah Lee Davison, and I hope you have as much fun listening as we had making it. Tons of excellent information, especially for you new graduates, but even those already in practice. I hope you enjoy the show. And only a few days left to sign up for the group coaching. Everything is a negotiation. If you're tired of not getting your way, check out bosssurgery.com for more information. Welcome surgeons. Residency didn't teach us everything we needed to learn to be a successful surgeon. While we spent our time caring for patients and learning how to operate, we didn't learn how to advocate for ourselves or navigate our career. I'm your host, Dr. Amy Vertries. I'm a general surgeon, certified coach, and founder of the Boss Business of Surgery series. This is where you'll learn those lessons not taught in residency. Welcome back. I have Dr. Sarah Lee Davison. We are here to talk about how to get patients into your clinic. All these things that especially you new graduates have not even occurred. And some of you in business, you know, you may be doing it wrong. But anyway, we're, <laughs> we're here to talk to you about a lot of different options for helping getting patients into your clinic. So Dr. Lee Davison, welcome. Welcome to the show. Thank you, Dr. Richie. It's so nice to be here. So tell me a little bit about yourself. Well, I trained in general surgery back in the early 2000s, um, mostly in Southern California, did my fellowship in minimally invasive surgery. And then I moved out to Tucson, Arizona, where I practice. Um, originally, the first seven years were in solo private practice in a really supportive community of both private and employed general surgeons. And then um, after about seven years of that, I did join the hospital system and became an employed surgeon for about six years. Um, and then found that after seeing the pros and cons of each, I wanted something a little bit in between. So now I'm back in private practice as part of a multi-specialty group that is physician-owned, physician-run, and um, just enjoying the same area that I've always practiced in since I graduated. Yeah, what a great uh, career path that you've had. And, you know, so many of us are just curious about which model we should go to or the, the benefits or the risks. So tell us a little bit about in your private practice, what were some of the benefits? What were some of the risks in that particular model for you? Um, I really loved having my own practice when I first started out of fellowship. It was a key factor of even the location I chose because I knew I wanted an area where the population would be open to a new grad having their own private practice, but also I would have support. So here in Tucson, we do have a university where there's, you know, a trauma center and things that are above maybe a brand new grad's uh, comfort level. I still had backup for that. And also a really nice group of uh, both employed and, and private practice surgeons so that I could have call coverage. And the things I loved about private practice were really getting a feel for what I felt was an important way to take care, care of patients. Um, I had total autonomy over that aspect, and it was wonderful. Um, I also learned a lot, which is what we're going to be talking about, about communicating with private practice um, primary care physicians and nurse practitioners and PAs, because that is you know, what supported my practice during those years. Um, the things that were not as fun were the legislative and administrative things. And so as more and more of those came out with 
meaningful use. And uh, at the time it was called PQRS. And now I think it's called MIPS. There's all these different, you know, legislative things that had to be met. And I could, I just could not keep up. I was spending a lot of my weekends doing that sort of thing. Also, as a solo practice, you can't really negotiate good rates with payers. Um, your malpractice, you don't get any discount for being part of a big group. So all those things were, um, were negatives. Joining the hospital, I made tons of money. That's really what it came down to. They paid so well, and that paycheck every two weeks was pretty awesome. But I lost all that autonomy that I had really valued. There was also a lot more red tape to get any one thing done. And it would seem like the simplest request, Amy, that I just needed help with, you know, my computer's not working or something. And I'm not kidding. It would sometimes turn into a 20 email chain of like, oh, that's not this person's job. That's this person's job. And then back and forth. And that just really got to be um, a little exhausting for me. So finally, I did two stints with them of three years. So I did six years in that. And um, then I just kind of had saved up enough that I could go back into private, which was a little bit of a financial hit, especially that first year. Um, but the physician-run multi-specialty group that I'm in is pretty amazing for combining the pros and cons. I've got a lot of help, ready, ready right there help for any issues I have. The contracting with payers and the malpractice rate is incredible compared to what it was when I was solo but I still have a lot of autonomy. So those are some of the pros and cons that I've gleaned from my, my uh, experience. Yeah, we have a similar past too. You know, I completely agree with you. I had very, very similar experiences with all of those things. You know, I worked for a private practice OBGYN before medical school and really liked the whole idea of the practice and running yourself and, you know, like picking the people that you work for that work for you and all the things. And I really like that aspect and learning a lot of that and also found the same limitations in the employed model too. I mean, and, you know, we were just talking before we started recording uh, the number of people that we're seeing that are getting fired from employed physician yeah. uh, positions. And if, you know, as surgeons, you just don't think that's going to happen. And, right. you know, that, so that part, you know, and I caught on early on, probably about two years ago with the pandemic and all just how insecure some of these employed positions can be. So yeah. um, it's, it's definitely has a lot of pros and cons with that too. I really like the idea of this multi-specialty group. I'm a part of a practice management company. So we too can negotiate with the rates because those were shockingly different. I mean, you know, the amount that you have to work extra just to, you know, break even for that was a lot. So completely different. I agree. And so I think we're, you know, good examples of living different kind of models and the, yeah. the pluses and minuses. Now, so tell me though, um, I know, and I've done this myself too, like the lessons that you've learned and, you know, you have such a great protocol of getting people into clinic and all the lessons that you learned. So take me through some of these lessons um, yeah. that, that you were sharing with me. Sure. I, um, I definitely think there's advantage to, if times are a little bit slow, really kind of cement some of these practices for yourself. Um, one key one that I think most of my primary referring providers have really appreciated is that when I'm on call, you're going to see a whole bunch of patients. And at least in our system, in our town, they come from everywhere. They come from some private docs. They come from some employed primaries. Whoever is listed as the primary care provider on that patient, 
I'll save their face sheets. And then once I get everybody kind of tucked in and things are a little bit calm, I'll just give a call to their office. And it's usually after hours. And I'm just leaving a message for the medical assistant for that doctor. But just letting them know that their patient's there, especially if it's kind of complicated, um, giving them that heads up is really good for making them look good too. And when they are able to look good for their patient, it reflects also on you that you gave them that heads up. So what I'll, what I'll generally do is just leave a message with the MA and say, hey, Mr. So-and-so is here and he's got this really complicated internal hernia, but he went to surgery, everything went well. He might be here for a while because intestines might not be waking up right away, but I just wanted to let you know. That way they can get all the records and that way when they are discharged and they try to call for an appointment, that doctor just looks like stellar that they already knew it and they kind of had a conversation with us in a way already over it. So I think that's really important. I completely agree. And, you know, really like we make them look good. And I would joke with my patients about this before. I was like, you know, I want to make sure that that their primary care looks really smart for sending them to me. <laughs> That's right. Yeah. And I mean, obviously their first priority is that you take good care of their patients. And we all recognize that. And we wouldn't be doing what we're doing unless we were dedicated to that already. It's just this extra little step that makes you look like a star and makes them feel and look like a star too. And then they'll remember that next time they're sending somebody electively as well. And I think it's a general appreciation for the primary care physicians. I mean, the amount of information that they have to navigate oh, yeah. um, is, is so overwhelming and anything that we do to make their life easier will certainly help and, and, you know, becoming an invaluable source for them certainly is a great, uh, a, a great thing to do. Yeah. And even when you're, when you're thinking about trying to make things easy for them, another thing I try to do is they get so many forms and documents uploading into their EMR. If I can take that extra few minutes on my consult note and put the CT scan, even the incidental findings that I don't really at the moment care too much about, right? Like if I'm going to do this emergency surgery, their pulmonary nodule that requires follow-up in three to six months is not that big of a deal to me, but it is important for the primary. And so putting that in my plan is just one of the numbers, pulmonary nodule, patient aware. And I did recommend that they follow up with primary. And if you can remember to also say that to the primary, when you do that phone call, or sometimes you don't even have to use the phone. If your EMR is um, linked to a bunch of the different primaries that you're dealing with, that's an even easier way to just say, Oh, you know, things went well with surgery, pulmonary nodule, they say maybe need some follow-up in three to six months. Those little things can really help them to navigate all that documentation they're getting. Another tip that people may not know in the 2021 coding guidelines is that you increase the medical decision-making by contacting someone within, um, it doesn't have to be the same day. It has to be within like a day and the options for communicating them are text or one of these systems. It's not just faxing the note. It has to be, you know, the attempts at some direct communication with that too, but that will also help your medical decision-making coding. That's true. That's totally true. I know when I treat my cancer patients as well, making sure to put the stage on there. And if I know other people's plans, um, the goal of being like a one-stop shop, um, I would do our tumor board summaries and things like that too. That really makes the primary care life so much easier. Yeah, I agree. Even, you know, we don't have pathology reports when I'm doing the consult or even when I'm usually calling the doctor, but then on my post-op note, I take that extra second and I have a, one of those little line items on my EMR that is the hard stop for me. And it says pathology and then it's just blank, but 
it always alerts me to fill that in. And even if it's just a gallbladder, you know, you put cholelithiasis and chronic cholecystitis, and then that's there for them. So they don't have to go look at the pathology if that's part of their normal flow or not, but at least they have everything right in one place. I was just talking to someone, uh, my, my student actually today about uh, one of these things you're talking about with tasks. So something comes across, you know, this happens all the time. We get a CT scan. In fact, just I uh, was talking to him today because we received a CT scan for someone who had was a gallbladder or something or other, but they also had a renal cyst and um, another finding on CT scan. And, you know, I, the nice thing about the EMRs is that we can tag those and we can mm-hmm. send them and, you know, someone needs to follow up with that. And so, you know, if we are not going to follow up with them, having the primary care physician do that is, is a great option uh, as well. Totally. Tell me a little bit about like when you visit your, um, the primary MDs and nurse practitioners and all. So what is a visit like that? Like, and what are some of the things that you use to help? Sure. That's a great question because it's probably was one of the harder things I had to learn to do. I felt like a rep, you know, I felt nothing, nothing against reps, but I think that probably one of the worst parts of being a rep is showing up at somebody's doorstep and then having to grab them from whatever they're doing, because you know, we're all busy generally. And this is, you know, 15 years of of practice now that I've been doing this. So I've gotten a couple tips that I think work better than others. I, it's very hot here in Arizona a lot of the time. And so I'll usually just bring like some local lemonade and local tea. And I'll just bring them to the front desk. And that generally puts people in a very happy mood to see you. And I just say, hi, you know, I'm Dr. Sarah Lee Davison. And I wanted to drop off some business cards. Um, And I, I often will also have something called we call them bio cards and they give like a little blurb about you more information than just a, a, um, a business card. So it'll have like, you know, kind of what are the things I do mostly and the, a little tiny bit about my background and what I think are the key components of my practice. And so I'll drop those off. If I have partners at the time, I'll also bring some of their bio cards and I just say, if anybody's available and they want to chat about anything, I'd be happy to right now. But if not, just if you wouldn't leave these in the break room, that'd be great. And that seems to be pretty well tolerated. If you really want to get time with someone, setting up time to sit with them is best. But that's, that's you know, think about it for yourself. How many of those do you want to have coming in all the time? And most of us really don't have time for a lot of that. But having those those moments where you even just talk to the front desk and the MAs and say, what can we do better for you guys? Like, how can we make it easier for you guys to refer to us? And are you getting our notes when I send them back to you after seeing the patients? And are the patients reporting back to you one way or the other? Do they like coming to our office or have they had complaints? Getting that feedback just from the front desk and the MAs is actually really valuable too. Oh, and I liked your tip about um, if someone you had a bad interaction with a patient, kind of warning them ahead of time about that, oh, yeah. um, you know, so give us an example of, of how that's worked for you. Yeah, um, that that one's a little bit hard to navigate sometimes because, um, well, first of all, we don't always know when patients aren't happy with us, right? But if we do, we usually find out. And I think that it's better than just kind of like squashing it and say, oh, that's really uncomfortable. I don't really want to deal with that. It is actually important, especially with your referring provider, to just give them a call, text, or you know, however you communicate with them in your EMR and say, hey, I just wanted to let you know I had a little bit of a difficult interaction with so-and-so. 
he or she wasn't, you know, the one that comes to my mind um, because it was fairly recent was this person really wanted um, some additional testing that I didn't think was necessarily at all related to anything for making a decision about their surgical needs. And so we had that conversation. They were really upset with me. And I wanted to let the primary know why I had made that decision. Um, you know, and if the primary disagreed and thought it was okay to order those tests, then that that would be left up to them. But I felt it was really important for them to know. Um, and when I called, I was, you know, okay, I have to give this bad news about um, them not liking me. And I feel bad because they're probably going to hear about it. That primary is probably going to hear back from that patient about it. Um, and they said, oh, yeah, that patient can be really difficult. And so it was actually, they really understood and they totally were not surprised. And I thought that was reassuring because having those conversations can be tough. And there are other times where my primaries will be like, wow, that's really surprising. They're not usually, you know, hypercritical or something. And I'll say, who knows, you know, it might've totally been on me or my staff. We might've been having an off day, but I just wanted to let you know that's coming. And um, this might be somebody that might be a good referral for them. Give them also, if you can, another avenue to help them because then, we don't want to leave them stuck necessarily if we don't have to. Oh, I completely agree. Um, I had an interesting um, interaction, very similar to that too, where a patient will call like daily and we would call back. And finally her, um, her husband called and was just absolutely angry that we kept calling. We're like, well, your wife keeps calling and <laughs> yeah. uh, <laughs> we have to answer. Um, but we let the primary care know and, and come to find out it was like early stage dementia. And, oh. uh, and it, was, it was a heads up for them that, uh, that she was struggling. So, wow. you know, in that communication, because we're all, you know, we all kind of feel like we're on the same team, then uh -huh. the patients really do get good care. Um, yeah, I agree. And, you know, I, I know that I've seen these Facebook group strings and things like that too, um, of like the primary care is asking, like, what do you want us to order beforehand? What's a problem? What's not a problem? Mm -hmm. You know, kind of like hernias, like, I don't need an ultrasound if you could see it from the door. Right. And right. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Yeah. And um, another one that I feel like I've educated a fair amount of newer primary providers on is diastasis versus hernia. That's an interesting one that, um, you know, trying to help them understand how to differentiate those. And what I always end with saying is if it's still confusing, send them my way. I'm happy to see them and I can figure it out for you. Um, but a lot of them have been like, wow, I didn't really know there was this thing called diastasis and that it's not a true hernia. And so that's been a, a fun one to educate some of the newer, especially, you know, nurse practitioners and stuff about it's been uh, an easy conversation and they really, really appreciate it. Yeah, because, you know, we help them look smart too. And what's not to yep. like about that? <laughs> <laughs> right. Absolutely. And the other thing that I find is trying to engage with people um, socially outside of just our job is really beneficial. And a lot of us limit our um, our associations that we join and our groups that we're into our specialty because it is it's a very comfortable place to be. And we get a lot out of it. You know, we if I go to a the surgeon mom's Facebook group, or, you know, like we were talking about, or if I go to my, you know, Tucson surgical societies, I get my CMEs for my grand rounds and I get to hear the, the residents present and it's amazing. Um, but sometimes being involved in the groups that aren't just surgeon related is an excellent way to not only gain knowledge, you know, I learn things all the time from them as well, but um, to help just put a face to a name and that helps them when they're making referrals as well. 
Oh, I completely agree. We have these um, CME lunchtime things, you know, that went away with COVID, but not starting to come back again, which is so much fun to interact with other people. One thing that I know that our primary care folks appreciate all the time is, you know, they they may send a patient knowing full well that they're not appropriate candidate for surgeons, you know, and, and I know that just drives people crazy. Like, why would they send them? And, you know, I always uh, tell my students, I was like, we're backups for them, you know, yeah. to, to encourage them to lose weight, to encourage yes. them to quit smoking. Mm-hmm. Um, and also to have a plan for like the asymptomatic gallstones or, mm-hmm. you know, things like that. I, I never hesitate to see those folks because, you know, it's really just shared decision-making and, and, you know, letting them be heard and telling them what to look for is going to facilitate their care down the line, you know, either reassure yeah. them or just remind them saying like, I, I know these, these stones are seen on here. And if you don't have any symptoms, then, you know, this is what to look for and to call me mm-hmm. and get a, a card and, and, you know, let the primary care know, happy to see them. And especially things yeah. like, you know, pelvic pain and some of those real difficult yes. ones, you know, the, that's sometimes not hard for us to sit down and have a conversation with them. Yeah. I know they're not going to need surgery, but you know, it is something that has some potential and, and supporting our primary care folks in that way is very helpful too. I totally agree. And I think that's one of the biggest changes from um, why I even got interested in this subject, because in residency, we have a very strong attitude from the internal medicine residents to the surgery residents to all the different specialties. Like, why are you calling me? You know, like this isn't a surgical issue or, and there's a little more of a, a deflection mentality. There's a little bit more of a we're not all on the same team mentality. And maybe that's changed. That could very well have changed since I was in practice, in residency, but in private practice, that's not how it is. You know, we really are trying to all be on the same page and help each other out. It, it's, you're definitely going to see some stuff that is clearly not surgical when you're talking to them, but that doesn't mean they don't need a surgeon's input. I completely agree. And, you know, when we were just talking before we started recording that, you know, one of the greatest enemies in surgery is, um, is isolation we don't always have to have surgeons as folks to make us feel less isolated. You know, mm-hmm. having great relationships or a referring provider who are also just people yes, uh, can yes. really just make it so much more interesting, um, you know, in our daily jobs. Yeah. And they come in so handy too. I mean, it goes both ways for sure, because sometimes I'll have patients that I pick up on call for an appy or gallbladder or whatever, and they may not even have a primary. And so helping to get them plugged in with some primaries here in town who might be busy, but I know are excellent and would be a really good fit for them that, you know, favor that favor highway can go both ways. And I'll be like, you know, is there any way you can see this patient? You know, they're not the healthiest. They don't really see doctors, but I think that they'd really benefit from seeing you and it goes both ways. I completely agree. And, oh, going back to the visits, um, you know, and, and just emphasizing, like I ran into one of my primary care docs. And I was like, how can I help? What can I do? He said, I need cards and and exactly what you do, which is exactly mm-hmm. what you said as well, because what they don't want to do is, to, you know, send someone to me for rectal prolapse. And I say, I don't do rectal prolapse. Right. You know? It's the, um, it, because the patient doesn't know that, that kind of um, distinction and, right. um, and having that ready, that marketing material, you know, pre-planted there mm-hmm. is really helpful for everybody. Right. And I know not everybody's comfortable with um, their cell phone being everywhere, but I will tell you it's huge um, because a lot of my primaries will, if they do have a question like that, like, Hey, Sarah, I don't remember if you do 
you know, whatever, rectal prolapse is a great example because it's so complicated, but not everybody knows how complicated it is. So I can't remember, do you do rectal prolapse or feeding tubes or something that, you know, not all of us do all the time? They'll just text me. And then before the patient even leaves their room, I'll hopefully have had a chance to respond. And if I'm not the right person, I'll say, oh, hey, but this person down on, you know, Oracle is the right person for you or whatever. And so I can kind of help lead them. And, and again, just making them look really great for their patients and also just great patient care. Yeah. And one thing that came up um, that I learned, you know, after a couple of years in here was uh, how to support your primary care provider when they need like an emergency and, you know, they have my cell number too. So if they had like a patient in, in clinic, that was clearly a problem, like, you know, they've known gallstones and now they're clearly having some, you know, intractable symptoms or, you know, an abscess that needs to be drained that's bigger than they're comfortable with. And mm-hmm. rather than just saying, send them to the ER for a couple hours, I was like, just give me a call. I can direct admit them. Um, yeah. and no problem. And that really, it saves an ER visit, the primary care, yeah. you know, gets them in and out of their clinic so much faster. It's stuff we do all the time. So it's not like it's a huge imposition. Right. Um, and that really, um, uh, I found was like one of the easiest things to help with the primary care as well. Right. And if they've got your phone number, Amy, I'm sure this happens to you too. It's not just for their patients, you know, them and their family members will be like, Hey, you're the person I know I can rely on. So I've got this issue going on. Um, Can you take care of me or my family members? And that's, that always feels really good to be able to, to, to know that they're choosing you. So I really like that aspect as well. Yeah. And you're tapping into their net network, just like they're tapping into yours. Mm-hmm. Like, Hey, I got this problem. It's like, I, I know you don't do this, but you know, who does? Why? Yes, I right. do. Yes, exactly. <laughs> or if I don't, I know this one person over at the u- university that might know somebody. So, you know, we, we have a network that they don't necessarily have access to. I completely agree. Um, and, and I know you mentioned this too, and I felt the same way. So many patients don't have primary care providers. You know, we always yeah. think of us being the subspecialty people that people refer to us, but a number of times I've had people that need primary cares and, you know, knowing and making sure it's, it's, there's nothing wrong with saying, and don't forget to tell them I sent you, um, yes. you know, really just saying like, nothing says you support someone more than sending people their way. Totally. And I really can't believe this has to be said, but I experienced this recently. Do not trash your primary care provider to the patient they sent you. (laughs) Definitely. And also if you hear that you've been trashed by somebody else or that they were, that you trashed somebody, sometimes it's not true. You know, patients are, um, they're scared, they're in pain or whatever when they visit us. So sometimes they don't interpret things well, but I have had that experience where I'm like, they said that about me. And then I called that provider, another uncomfortable conversation, by the way, those can be awkward too. But there was one um, patient who came and said that the GI doctor had said the reason they had um, so much pain was they had looked at an x-ray and they could see the titanium clips from my gallbladder surgery. And they said, I used more than I should have. And I'm like, what, why would they say that? You know? And so I called the GI doctor and he's like, I never said that. And I did comment on those clips, but I told them you guys always use clips and those don't leave the pain symptoms that you're complaining of, but you know, patients don't always hear things. So clarifying that is okay too, but definitely don't trash talk each other. Well, what a great example, though, the fact that, you know, this it's a game of telephone, too. Yeah. <laughs> you never know what they're going to hear. 
I remember that game. That was always fun. (laughs) (laughs) Could not agree with you more on this is finishing your notes and sending them to the primary care providers right away. Yeah. Notes can be so hard. I feel like that's one thing that will raise my frustration level. If at the end of the day, I've got a bunch of notes that I haven't finished and I'm like, I'm tired. I worked my you know, butt off all day and I just need to get home. If I leave some notes, I always try to have them done the next day. And I know not everybody does that, but I usually try not to leave any notes. And that is the total reason because I'm not saying they're going to for sure look at it the very next day, but they might. And then you've got this, you know, unfilled out note, or they can't even see that you did it, even though the patient's saying they were seen. Um, I think that that can raise a lot of confusion. I completely agree because, you know, they do call the primary care physician. Like if we recommend something or order something and they're not always going to call us, they're going to call their primary care. And they're like, I don't know. And, you know, it's just, it it could potentially make them look bad or Mm -hmm. make extra work for them. So anything we do to make their life easier is very helpful. And one note about notes, they do not get better over time. They are not wine. No, no, no. I have so many, um, Uh, I forget what they're called on my EMR right now, but like quick texts. So I can fill in a lot of things fairly quickly now and just getting to know your EMR. If you are still struggling with that, calling one of the IT people and saying, can you just shadow me in my clinic today and see how I'm doing it and maybe give me some pointers how I could make this easier and faster for myself? Because it is such a, a source of um, frustration for a lot of us that I think doing anything you can to make it a little bit easier is, is important, not only for the patient care, like you said, but just for our sanity. And I completely agree. Um, and one thing that's helped with me is, is, you know, little templates too, uh, and having in two places. Cause everyone's like, Oh, you can put them in the EMR. I'm like, yeah, that's nice. I'm going to have a backup too. So yeah, when they change, oh, yeah, that's true. That's a really good point. How many times have you changed EMR in your career? Like how many new EMRs have you had to get used to? I can't even count. So, you know, like having that backup, you're right. So I don't have to recreate the wheel every time. That's really important. And you know, even the same EMR, they'll change it to where I can't find crap <laughs> or I can't access it. You know, there's right. one where the dot phrases didn't work. And, uh, you know, so I, I've definitely, I, paranoia runs rampant, but it's for good reason. Yeah, that's true. It's true. I think we might be actual twins. I don't know. Have you noticed? Yeah, I know. <laughs> <laughs> We're even wearing the same shirt, by the way, for those of you who can't see us. That's <laughs> yeah, true. I like this idea too, you know, like attending mixers and things like that too. You know, they, a lot of times they're going to be social events too. And, you know, that, those are not to be underestimated and not to circulate necessarily with all your same people either, but getting to know new people mm-hmm. is a great way to expand your, um, your reach. I had to get more comfortable with awkward moments to be able to do a lot of this. Um, it's not that I'm a, a total introvert, although I know a lot of us are, uh, but at the same time, I don't enjoy purposefully putting myself in these awkward positions where you're like, so, Hey, who are you? And who am I? And what's your story? Especially when I get nervous that I've already met them. And then I'm not sure if you remember that I've met them before. Um, however, I did do some work on just sitting with a coach on like, okay, what's the worst that can happen if you're in an awkward situation, sure, it might be awkward. And then it's not the end of the world. We're going to get through it, right? And I think that for a lot of us that are perfectionists, not being able to navigate those situations just automatically and perfectly can be 
really anxiety provoking, but truly, you know, just putting yourself out there and saying, you know, if you're not sure if you've met her before, like, did we meet at one of these before? Just putting yourself out there and you'll get to know some people. And then they might remember that face and that name the next time that they're, you know, having trouble with something or they need to refer somebody. So it does, it does pay off in the long run. Oh, I couldn't agree with you more. I think that's the most stressful thing for me in social situations. <laughs> I know you, do I refer yeah. to you? Did I operate on you? You know, <laughs> Right. Or, or are you just a person from my kid's school that I saw, you know, at a different thing? There's so many people we meet every day that we don't always know how we know them. Exactly. I couldn't agree more. So what are some other tips that, um, that you have that, that would be useful? Um, the only other thing I, w- I think about when I talk about communication with, um, some of the younger surgeons that I sometimes mentor on these issues is also having really um, clear communication with your staff. And they need to understand how important your communication is with the other doctor's offices, but also how much they influence that as well. How they make that first impression when a patient walks in the door. So I've been um, asking my my, uh, front staff and my MA to do three sentence greetings because it's It feels different to walk into an office where somebody says, hi, you know, welcome to our office. I'm Kim. Before they ask you for, if you just walk in and they're like, sign in over there and sit down, we'll call you in a second. Or right when they walk in, hi, can I have your insurance and your ID for making a copy? Or hi, do you have an appointment? It just feels different to have this little greeting. And so I I just have them do three sentences. They can pick whatever they want. But usually if you make them do three sentences, they have to say something like introducing themselves or welcome to the office or something. And I think it makes a big difference on the patient's first impression of the office. Um, And the other thing I always tell them is you are the person who needs to reach out to me if somebody's calling and is complaining about something, because I won't know unless you tell me. And so listening, not trying to solve it right then, just listening to get the gist of what the problem is letting you know that you understood and you heard them and then that you're going to be reaching out to me. And when I'm out of the operating room or out of the patient room, you're going to let them know or let me know what the issue is. And then we'll, we'll come back and get back in touch with them. I think that goes a long way for people's frustration and doesn't allow it to just continue to escalate, escalate, escalate before you've had a chance to really help make it a better situation for them. Yeah, that's a great point. Um, And when it comes to visiting other offices too. Uh, I've not always gone on some of these trips, but I will have the office staff go, you know, wearing the same, mm-hmm. you know, color scrubs and things like that. And then like bearing mm-hmm. gifts, of course, but you know, they're actually sometimes the better folks to go um, to like support staff to support staff, because, you know, asking like, are you getting referrals quickly? You know, are you getting our notes? You know, that it doesn't necessarily have to be the physician to physician, but the support staff can really be a huge extension of you. Um, and, you know, that's another where your first impression is very helpful. So having them kind of coordinated and, and motivated, is like, we're here to help you. And, you know, we're really glad to, to meet you. And, you know, we talk on the, cause they talk on the phone all the time. Yeah. And, you know, to really putting face, faces to names and, and, you know, really kind of going a little extra to help out. It goes a long way. I love that idea, Amy. It's great because, you know, like we don't always have the time for it. And plus, I think that for our staff that are in the office every single day, that would be fun, like a kind of a fun excursion a trip. Uh, yeah. 
And they usually like, you know, go, go, we'll pay for lunch and, you know, go yeah. and, and something like that. And it's, uh, you know, it shakes things up a little bit too for them as well. But, you I know, getting it. to those people they talk all the time with um, and really strengthening their relationships to really expand on all that. Yeah. I'm, I'm jotting that down. I love that idea. Yeah, absolutely. I agree. You know, working patients in um, as much as possible. I'll tell people like, if you run any problems, you just call me. And yeah. you no, know, now that's with some warnings, because if you, if you bypass your office staff, you know, that can also lead some, to some resentment. And so I usually mm-hmm. say, let me know. And then I tell my office manager and I beg for forgiveness that I told him I was him. <laughs> right. Right. And you know, we're, we're just people too. So sometimes you can, sometimes you're on vacation or sometimes you are your post-call and you're just, you can't stay in clinic an extra hour to see an extra patient, you know? So I think that having those boundaries and those realistic expectations of yourself is totally fine. But when you can, it goes a long way to make a difference for other people too. Yes. And I'm looking at all of your communication guidelines. Yours are so helpful, you know, checking faxes daily, of course, signing things, checking voicemails um, and tasks. And, you know, I, I think this implied, of course, in empowering your staff to mm-hmm. respond to some of these right away. So yeah. there's always, even if you're not around getting that constant um, uh, reporting back. Cause I, I know like, especially when I'm going on vacation, you know, there's a lot of things that are, have stocked up and my MA, you know, she keeps trying to rest control from me. I swear I'm a work in progress, <laughs> but <laughs> and then, you know, sometimes, you know, I do the protocols and sometimes she does, you know, I can call these people I'm like, yes. Okay, fine. <laughs> yeah. No, you, you mentioned that you keep um, like your quick texts and your, and your templates in a backup location. I have some things like that. And this, the, what I sent um, you is from something that I developed when I saw that I had lost a couple MAs, you know, and then I had to retrain somebody. And instead of reinventing the wheel, I just wrote all this stuff down as like, these are kind of the expectations and they're different from a traditional policy and procedure manual because they're more personalized to what I really hope for and what I value. Um, And I think that having that can go a long way for your sanity if and when you have new staff come in. I completely agree. Um, We have a Google Drive that has uh, SOPs, so standard operating procedures. And, you know, these days it is so easy to do stuff. You know, I will screenshot something on my computer and, you know, crop it. Uh, pull it into a Word document with details so they see the pictures. And so, oh, nice. for example, like my mastery data, uh, mastery of breast surgery database, you have to do all these like multiple different screens. And some of the things that she wouldn't know, some things I just, you know, put in automatically. So yeah. I um, made it's a six page document. I was like, but if someone comes in, this is start to finish with pictures. And they oh, found nice. it very valuable. Oh, that's great. Yeah. There's some things you can do now where you can actually do videos of it too. So you can do that mm-hmm. in Loom very easily. Um, but there, there's other things called Loom and some of these others where, um, and, you know, keep it as simple as possible, but even just doing video things here too, um, it takes a little bit of time up front, but it saves you so mm-hmm. much time down the line, especially with turnover. And we forget these people that work for us are going to move on and that's normal. Yeah. They're supposed right. to. Right, right. Right. I'm, I'm smiling also, Amy, because as we're talking, you know, like when I started this conversation with you, I felt like I was giving information maybe for, you know, younger or newer surgeons. And now as we're talking about these days, we can do so much with technology and video. The younger surgeons that are listening to this are probably rolling their eyes and saying, wow, these, <laughs> these things are so, you know, secondhand for them. But 
for you and me, maybe we have to work a little harder to like find out where everything is and put it all together. I think you and I are like similar in career of like, I feel like a little young and know some things and really old and others. Right, right. That's how I am. Yeah. <laughs> and so I'm thinking any other tips that, that we haven't covered? I think that was like, that was a lot. Yeah. I mean, I hope it, there was some that was useful. I, the only other thing I, I plump into my communication ideas is um, communication with other uh, people in my practice. And so if you are in a leadership role on a committee, you know, especially if it's a committee that's important um, for how we do our day to day, whether it's like a quality committee or something like that, we always think that the minutes that are produced by whoever produces the minutes are all anybody should have to look at. But I don't know if you've ever read minutes and really tried to glean any super valuable information from them for for day-to-day changes in your practice. It's sometimes really challenging. So when I'm on those committees, I'll just take a little note of things that anybody in the meeting says, wow, I really hope our surgeons get this information or read their emails or check their fax blasts or whatever they send at that moment. Um, You know, and if it's something about, hey, we're really being looked at for if we're ordering our antibiotics right or if we're doing our heparin right or whatever it is you know a little blurb on that from another surgeon can go a long way so and I'll often just text it nowadays I'll be like hey this came up at quality meeting but um, you know please remember to to order your heparin if you have any trouble just give me a call and I'll let you know what the protocol is so that's another communication thing where um, I used to call them pod updates because it was just what we called our group And I would just let everybody know what was being said in those meetings so they could not fall behind the curve on those things either. Perfect. I think it's a great tip too. Um, And it's so interesting because like all of this is really just communication and respecting other people. And I think a lot of times we're so caught up in what we're thinking that we don't really cultivate these relationships. And that's one of the, um, the habits that, that we do wrong uh, typically. So in, in the bossurgery.com, there's the how surgeons rise which is based on the book, how women rise. Yeah. And one of those is, you know, not cultivating relationships and, you know, not leveraging these relationships too, but that's what all of this is about. Yeah. And it just makes the day so much better too. Better yeah. care, less isolation, mm-hmm. um, and, you know, really kind of supporting everyone else. And, you know, why not? Right. I think that's a great summary. A totally true. Thank you, Dr. Lee Davison for joining me today. Thank you, Dr. Richie. I appreciate it. If you want more information on the Boss Business of Surgery series, check out bosssurgery.com.